these seed regions, they are like massive in space. Like imagine the distance between Earth and Moon, the length of a sheet is 51 times of that distance. So they are like massive. That is huge. No, yeah. I mean, I'm no yeah. expert. So that, that, that yeah. like figuratively, yeah. yeah, gives the idea of a huge thing. Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Eleana. And I'm your co-host, Giuliano. And today we are diving into sheath regions driven by solar eruptions. I am particularly excited today as we are joined by Dr. Mati Alalahti, who recently completed his PhD at the University of Helsinki in Finland, studying the Sith regions, or as he puts it, these messy storm triggers. First of all, congratulations, Mati. How do you feel now that you completed the PhD cycle? First of all, hello, everyone, and thanks for having me here. Well, of course, it's one kind of achievement to like finally finish my education that has lasted more than 20 years. So it feels great. Cool. I I can relate to the feeling and hopefully soon, Giuliano, you will relate too. Uh, yeah, no pressure. Thank you. <laughs> How are you, Giuliano? I'm very fine. Thank you. I'm actually excited. I always like physics and I know nothing about it. So looking forward to it, especially because I have no idea what is the topic we're talking about. I can't oh. even pronounce it yet. Is it sheath? Exactly. Solar sheath. Mate, and it's would... important to pronounce it correctly because I don't want to offend anyone here. Is he doing a good job pronouncing yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, cool. I agree, yeah. So maybe why don't you jump ahead, Mati, and, and explain us what are exactly sheath regions driven by solar storms? As was mentioned, I have studied sheath regions driven by solar eruptions. So... There are eruptions happening at the sun and then they propagate in interplanetary space and they also drive these specific plasma environments in front of them. And these are called seed regions and I have studied them. So what is exactly a solar eruption? Can you explain to the audience who might not be familiar with the term? Yeah, well, uh, usually they are called coronal mass ejections. So, so these are like huge eruptions happening at the surface of the sun in which like a massive load of plasma and magnetic field is like uh, injected to space from the sun. And usually there is like plasma at the sun. It becomes very like unstable and that triggers the eruption and then it happens. I already have a question straight away. So you mentioned this word several times now. And I'm still not sure if I am familiar with the meaning. What is plasma exactly? Well, uh, in general, we are familiar with the matter that is like surrounding us. And people are usually familiar with the three states of that matter. So solid, liquid and gas. Yeah, I'm familiar with those. Yeah. Yeah, great. So plasma is like the fourth state of matter. If we increase the temperature of an ordinary gas, it eventually becomes plasma. Because when we increase the temperature, the collisions between molecules or, or atoms in that gas, those collisions become more, they have higher energy, and then those collisions can ionize these molecules or atoms. So free charges are formed in that gas. And so shortly, 
plasma is gas where there are like three charges and it reacts strongly to electric and magnetic fields. So tell me if I got it straight. Plasma is a gas that is it's it, it has a such a high temperature that the particles they agitate so much that they become ions and the gas start ha, starts having two different charges positive and negatives right yeah okay. can we find plasma like in normal life like is it something that just you know scientists see in the sun or is it do we have plasma on earth just asking we have plasma somewhere in the earth as well for example every time there is a thunderstorm there is some plasma in in when there is lightnings yeah that is so cool indeed it is very awesome and actually we use also plasma for uh producing energy uh Do on we? the ground yeah that's true actually yeah good that you remind me, reminded me of that eleana so like we produce like energy in in different waves and one of these waves is like nuclear power and in, in addition to that there could also be fusion power where we are like producing energy with this fusion reaction and in this fusion the matter where this energy is cut is like plasma so like our, our all our energy might come from plasma one day so mati in simple words, for someone who is not from science, how would you describe what are exactly the sheath regions and how they are formed? Well, first of all, like uh, interplanetary space is filled by solar wind. That is like a continuous stream of plasma from the sun. So there is solar wind everywhere in interplanetary space. When there's a solar eruption, it travels in space and it travels faster than the ambient solar wind and that would be like the same thing as there's a river in which water flows and then there's a boat that flow like that with the speed of which is faster than the the speed of water in that river so our boat it's a solar eruption our our stream of river is our solar wind when a boat it goes faster than than actually the stream water has to deflect around that boat a bit and that area where that deflection happens that's a sheet so and also in in the context context of these sheets like a, a term shock is very important so actually this boat it's like going so fast that similarly as like when a hornet like flies on a sky like so fast that there's a shock also a solar eruption or in our example this boat goes so fast that there's a shock in front of it so the sheet is the area between a shock and a boat in which this water deflects a, a side of it so that's that sheet and also it's like very turbulence area or environment so basically i would also another example of this sheet is that like yeah solar wind is again a river and then when it goes into a sheet it's like similar as a water going to a waterfall so imagine there's a waterfall that waterfall is a shock that kind of like uh, changes the properties of a stream 
significantly and then that immediate downstream of a waterfall that is like kind of like super messy super turbulent that's our sheet and that's the region where it flows around an object so that's a sheet region may i just say that that was the most creative way i've ever heard someone describing a sheet so kudos to you martin for that that was very very nice you made even me understand it so well done on that right so you said you studied the sheath regions that uh, form ahead of the propagating solar eruptions. And uh, I think our audience will be curious to understand why do we care to understand these sheath regions and what kind of information have you collected through your research? Well, we should care about them because, first of all, well, they can drive several consequences here at the Earth. So when a solar eruption, it propagates in the in space it finally might arrive to the earth and when it hits the earth it can there is like a very complicated interplay between this solar eruption and its seeds and then earth's magnetosphere or magnetic environment and yeah so this can like lead to several consequences in our technologic technological systems and for example like satellites there might be some damage damage on them so that's one one reason why to study them or also uh, they are like unique plasma environments in our solar system so there are also other kinds of seeds but then these seed regions driven by these solar eruptions they are like unique they have specific features that's also why to study them so they can basically reveal something new about plasma as something new we can't find any anywhere else in the solar system yeah and then there's also this thing that like when i previously described what is plasma like these electric and magnetic fields like had like very important role in that definition so basically also when we study some some plasma in space it kind of like increases our understanding of electromagnetic interaction that is very that is like fundamental for matter so it's like if we study something related to space plasmas it's like automatically we are like studying something very fundamental did you often felt mati um that uh, the sun is kind of neglected because uh, many people get excited especially at the early years of our studies at the physics department about like supernovas black holes gravity and uh, or gravitational waves better say and then there is the sun which is so close to us and we can observe him very well and uh, you can correct me but we have a fleet of spacecraft observing him from earth and also at different locations and there is so much we can learn from studying the sun which could also possibly answer some uh, questions we have for other systems around the universe so it's it's also nice to like you know, so some some love to the sun. Well, uh, not on our field. If we are asking from other space physicists, but yeah, like if I tell someone that I'm well, I'm a space physicist, then usually first questions might be about black holes and dark ah, matter. And, okay. Yeah. I then see I have to. Then, yeah. Yeah. Then I, I have they to. They never. Like, yeah. Christopher Nolan hasn't made a movie about the sun yet. No. You're yeah. right. Maybe but, we but, should ask for it. Yeah, but there is this this movie called Knowing. There's actually a huge solar eruption that basically destroys the Earth. So 
it's kind of like related to our field, but then it's yeah not that accurate. But speaking oh. of a huge solar eruption, there has been a very big solar eruption that at some point did reach Earth. And we were lucky at that time, we didn't have the technology we have today. So it didn't have that big of an impact on an everyday life. But if something similar happens today, then it's important to know um, what will be the impact on an everyday life. And maybe through your studies, do you investigate something, Mati, uh, like um, within the sheath regions that can help us understand that? As I mentioned previously, so the solar eruptions and also like their seeds, they interact strongly with the Earth's magnetosphere. And then that can have like several consequences. Well, I didn't investigate the consequences itself, but like uh, one very important uh, ingredient in this interaction is uh, the magnetic field of these seeds and also the magnetic field of of those solar eruptions. But, But let's focus on those seeds regions. So these seeds, they have magnetic field and it's very messy. It like, it, it's like if we are looking spacecraft data that is, is from, from a sheet, then it's like, it looks complete mess. But there's also like some structure actually on it. So I studied the fine structure of this magnetic field. And basically my research has a contribution to like, like a gradual proceeding in which we try to understand these sheet magnetic fields like profoundly and then uh, in at the end of the day, we could basically model them uh, accurately. Maybe you can explain to the audience what kind of observations do you use in order to do this work? Well, as was mentioned, so there are like a lot of spacecraft near the Earth, and some of them are outside of Earth's magnetosphere. And I, basically, I use measurements taken by the spacecraft. So spacecraft they have different instruments that measure different properties of plasma. So one of these properties is magnetic field. Then there are like density and temperature and so on and speed. And well, I focused on measurements of the magnetic field of these seed regions. So yeah, these spacecraft, they measure this magnetic field. They send this data to the earth. Then I downloaded it from NASA database and investigated and maybe to explain even more to people because so you collect those data from the databases and how do you process them because i think some people uh, when they think of uh, space scientists and uh, space physicists astrophysicists solar physicists all the kind of space physicists they think of people looking uh, through a telescope but that is not the case as you described you collect the data from an existing database and so how is your uh, everyday life as a scientist in space physics what do you do with the data of course like yeah i download some data and then i go through it so basically my days are constructed by well studying the data by first of all, I have to like pro usually like code my programs, which I use to like study it. But uh, before doing that, I ju- might just like have a quick view of that data. I want to investigate it. So I download some data, I plot it like in a very simple way and like check its general features and then if I already know what I want to study, then I start to think 
like what kind of codes or programs I need uh, to study the data the way I want. So then big part of my day might be programming some codes to analyze it. And also the, this includes like uh, constructing some figures, like there is a code that plots, plots data in a certain way. And then uh, that's like the other part. And then the other part is like reporting that with actual words. So I write my results with, with uh, actual text and then analyze those results. For those who don't know, all of us, um, me, Mati, and Giuliano, we are all in science. And a big part of our work, as Mati just said, is writing down what we have done and how we have done it. We write down uh, our results and what we understand from the data we analyzed. And then that goes to a paper and that gets then under review. And I have heard stories about uh, people having struggled with review. So how was your experience, Mati? Well, my my review processes they have they have actually went surprisingly well. Basically, I have quite good experiences about review process. Like, but of course, like you have to be a bit lucky. <laughs> so, but of course, they are like in a way they are a bit stressful because like I always kind of like expected what I, if I what if I get like very bad review reports, but in the end, like. I did surprisingly well, but it's a bit different between like doing modeling versus doing data because data, it's like, it, they are like pure measurements. If you report some data and you haven't done anything on it, that's just like pure measurements. Like no one can argue with that. Then you can start analyzing it and then it becomes a bit more complex, but that's like completely different what people have in modeling. Like the, there are much more like ingredients in which like people might yeah they might like have different opinions i think that's that was a very interesting point when you said that you know there's not much a reviewer can say when you just present measurements and i think that's important because you said that in your work you take the measurement from this common archives from mm -hmm. the, this database from nasa or whatever i think that's a huge difference compared to you know uh, for example, biology, where the data and your measurements, you make them and you create your own phenomenal by doing experiments. So there, there's a lot much that there's much more that the reviewer can argue, because if you design the experiment in a wrong way of, you know, you use the different protocol or a wrong protocol, then maybe you're measuring a questionable phenomenon. Whereas, you know, in this case, all scientists had used like these common archives and databases. And, you know, you, you remove the questionability of that. But there is also a pitfall when dealing with data as well, because it's not just uh, the data are the facts. They were collected by a spacecraft, but they are also being calibrated. And then you process them with some certain methodology. And from that, you're trying to understand what the data tells you. And uh, maybe some people will question the, the methodology. But I do agree like, with what Marty said, because I do uh, modeling, which involves observations as well. But uh, there is a bit more room to argue uh, why you use that model and not the other one when those people claim it's better. So there is indeed some more debate. And I can also understand in biology, uh, it's even more complicated. And oh my God, what a pity it would be you have set up an experiment which 
cost some money. And then you have a reviewer saying, scrap it all and do it from start. Oh, that happens. Oh, that happens. Yeah. And then, yeah, I can like report the pure data and then like, like, for example, I can do some statistical analysis and, and tell that these are my results, but then like the tricky parts comes when I try to interpret those results. So like I can report and comment that these are like my uh, successes or interpretation, why the results are what they are. And of course, there can be some argument that yeah, not everybody agrees necessarily with my interpretation. And yeah, that's where like some argue can be. Speaking of results and interpretations, and I think I asked that question, but I don't remember if it got answered in the end. I'm sorry. I'm forgetting. I late, Lately, I have the memory of a goldfish. Isn't that the expression people use? That the, when you forget easily? I can't remember. <laughs> I see. I'm not the only one who can't remember. But anyway, speaking of results, Mati, I wanted to ask you if you could name one of your results. Which one is, you think, the most important that came out of your work? Well, I would say that finding how localized fluctuations of magnetic field in seed can be. So like these seed regions, they are like massive in space. When, when a seed passes through Earth, it takes usually like 11 hours for it to pass Earth. But what it means like in size wise is that like, like imagine the distance between earth and moon, the length of a sheet is 51 times of that distance. So they are like massive. That is huge. No, yeah. I mean, I'm no yeah. expert. So that, that, that yeah. like figuratively yeah. Yeah, gives the idea of a huge thing. Yeah. It's only the sheath part of an eruption, right, Matt? Because there's a lot coming behind it as well. Yeah. And then also, well, that was like a radial width of, of a sheet. So that's like the radial kind of like refers to direction, direction from the earth to the sun. So in that direction, that was the width of a sheet. But then if we are like thinking like longitudinal width, that is like then perpendicular to that radial so yeah basically it's like 390 times this distance from earth to the moon wow yeah so like they are even more massive on that that distance so like in a way it's kind of like it's kind you you could guess this result but also like i actually like like reported it that like these seeds, they have these magnetic fields, and there are like some processes that that creates like this kind of, of form, this kind of background magnetic field in these seeds. So it kind of follows general patterns, but then uh, embedded in that uh, background magnetic field, there are a lot of fluctuations, and these fluctuations can be like very localized. So when we are talking about uh, this interaction the seeds have with the Earth's magnetosphere, it really can depend on like what part of these seeds actually hits the Earth. And yeah, that's actually like one consequence of future research is that like it, it, it will be quite important to be able to predict these magnetic fields in these seeds accurately 
because if if those magnetic fields differ a lot depending on where we are in in a sheet then like these consequences at the earth can also vary a lot you measuring the size of these sheets i, I didn't measure the size of these ah, sheets, but I, I i did measure like how magnetic field how it varies in a single sheet when like measurements are taken in different locations of the same sheet so basically ah, okay how yeah, yeah yeah no so the, the 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 fluctuations they vary in the same sheet and you measured how it fluctuates yeah and okay. how yeah basically like if we have one sheet and then we have like multiple measurements from different locations of that sheet mm -hmm. yeah so let's say that there are two spacecraft observing the same sheet at mm -hmm. different locations so basically i compared how wide different magnetic fluctuations can be by comparing measurements taken by two, two different spacecraft so yeah that's kind of like give some estimation how wide structures on on the magnetic field of a sheet can be and that is very important because uh based on where earth is located with respect to this big structure the impact that structure will have will have different effects uh in our environment um if uh yeah if i may say so it's it's really it's really nice to see how things change in different locations so i do agree this is a very interesting analysis and results that was your one of your you know biggest or most important discoveries was there a moment that you remember with pride and, and, and you thought, you know what, I did really well there? Well, there was like uh, an enormous amount of joy and also like this feeling that, yes, I did it. Yeah, my PhD like consists four scientific publications and like this one we discussed like just earlier, it was like my fourth publication. But these first two, in, in those I tried to identify certain like small scale fluctuations from the magnetic field data of a sheet region and they were like like in public like in the first publication i studied certain kind of structures and on the second one uh, a bit different like uh, kind of structures so i had to construct algorithms that identifies the structures from the magnetic field data and these structures are so like how frequently they occur or they occurrence it's uh, it's dependent it's dependent dependent on uh, different parameters not just uh, the magnetic field but also about density and temperature but like i i constructed these algorithms just based on features on the magnetic field data then i run this algorithm through like my data and then like uh, these identified wave structures, when I plot them on a map, on a certain kind of map, they were placed on, on locations where they theoretically should be. So that was like, I, I still remember when I like hit my code so that I, I will run it and then it constructed the plot and then those structures were where they kind of like should be. So I was like, yeah. That's like amazing, like that my best sign for me 
to believe that actually the algorithms I constructed, they like work. So it was like something super good. Like I felt amazing. Yeah. It was like, yeah, the feeling of, of success was like, yes, I did it. It was great. The eureka moment. Yeah. And also like the, you know, like my efforts were not in vain. Something nice came out of it. And yeah. Yeah. Very nice proud moment. Actually, we have a Greek here. How is the correct pronunciation for Eureka? Evrika. Evrika. There you go. Yes. And if I may add, we previously discussed about like review processes and so on. And actually, like uh, in my first publication, I didn't have this map where like these different structures were like located at different places. And it was funny because like after like doing my first study, I was like, like I was quite certain that like, yeah, these are the structures, like, yeah, these are like correct structures identified in a correct way, but I wasn't like 100% sure. But then on the, when I plot the map, map in the second study, then it like kind of like was a very strong confirmation about my methods. And the funny thing is that like, yeah, about review process and so on. So when my thesis was actually like in pre-examination, one of these uh, pre-examiners stated in his report that like first he commented the first paper and he mentioned, I'm not sure if these identified structures actually are the structures. But then when he had read the second paper, he was like, okay, they are those structures. So like, in yeah. Your face. Like, yeah. <laughs> How did you dare to doubt your first paper? <laughs> but yeah, it was like, funny yeah and yeah. also like a nice like somehow it was nice that like his way of thinking followed my way of thinking like i had like years ago so yeah that's nice and that shows how like the thinking also develops like you start mm-hmm. from something and then from there you get that moment of like oh what if i look into this direction more and then you try to do your your magic and suddenly something good comes out of it and that's that's always very nice yeah and also like i think this is like an example how science proceed gradually so like you don't like solve the whole universe in one single publication but it's like a gradual proceeding in which like results and reports like confirm they confirm each other or then then like argue with each other but like anyway it's like a gradual proceeding yeah it requires a lot of patience may i ask you now mati on a different level do you have any fun story to share from your uh life as a student bachelor's master's phd here in helsinki because i have something in mind but let's see well i actually made it to one quite interesting magazine right one. yeah so i ha- i have actually been in in cosmopolitan magazine that's i i was a i was about to bet science and nature sorry i didn't see that coming yeah no i i have actually been in finnish cosmopolitan magazines but i was i was actually a master's student back then but i was like doing my master thesis that then like actually ended up being my first scientific publication. But so, yeah, like Finnish Cosmopolitan magazine came to do an article about my supervisor, Professor Emilia Kilkua, and then they wanted to take some 
pictures and then like we had this we took we took this picture in which like I was having a meeting with Emilia and then like yeah that's now in <laughs> in Finnish cosmopolitan so that was great I like it did you buy a copy of course <laughs> Definitely. Because <laughs> uh, I haven't seen, I mean, I know the story for the interview. Uh, for the for the audience who won't know, I don't know if I mentioned, but Mati and I, we are in the same uh, research group. So obviously I have heard the stories, but I wasn't there at that time. So I haven't seen the article, the photos, and I'm, I'm curious. Maybe one day I can sneak through your copy and see the article. But if you want, very... you, can give, you can give us the picture of the article and we use it as a thumbnail of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Being a scientist. Yeah, it was actually funny when when the volume was published and then I was a, I was in a grocery store with my friends and then I I bought it the, ma- the magazine. I was like, I'm actually in that magazine. <laughs> How <laughs> did your like, friends no react? <laughs> they were like, no way. It's very nice. I mean, like I I like it a lot when uh, also more popularized magazines they try to promote uh, scientists and uh, that we exist and we are normal people uh, nothing weird thinking or thinking that the sun has been neglected yes yes <laughs> if they ever interview me I will tell them the sun has been very much neglected I mean like come on all the majority of the population cares about is whether we are going to have an aurora or not. So they look at their options for that reason. I mean, I did too when I was living in Oulu. I was doing a bit of aurora hunting, but there's so much more about the sun. So how did you decide or when did you decide that the sun was your your topic? I mean, maybe, okay, let's let's start from the beginning. What made you decide to become a physicist and then why the sun so how i decided to start studying physics it's kind of like well it's quite interesting because in high school i didn't even like physics i only took some physics courses because i thought that i want to go to medical school and i knew that like in the entrance exam of a medical school there are like questions about physics so i studied physics there but like i i wasn't a fan I am the same. I am in that group, Mati. I'm with you. (laughs) Yeah. Then like after high school, I was preparing myself for this entrance exam exam of of medical school. And at that point, I actually like got very excited about physics. And then somehow like in high school, physics was like quite difficult for me. But then at this point, I somehow I started to understand it like much better then I, I also felt that, hey, I could actually be like rather good in it. And it's also like interesting. So maybe I could, instead of medical school, go to study physics. And then I did that. And well, at, at first I didn't, I didn't feel I want to be a researcher, but then like gradually during my university studies, like I felt more and more strongly that researching could be a thing for me and on my second year there were like electrodynamics courses in which I like got very excited about the electromagnetic interaction and then like in in today's research besides of fusion then space physics is like the the field where this electromagnetic interaction is investigated 
so that's how I ended up. Yeah, in space. Uh, Sorry, yeah. no, I meant yeah. <laughs> in the space physics corridor. Exactly. Yeah, and we are very happy about that. Yeah, and there's no anything like a strong point that like why why the sun just like in general as space physics because of like electromagnetic interaction and also like when we are studying like these eruptions and also plasma in interplanetary space in general it involves like fluid dynamics so there are like flow phenomena which is also like very interesting that like i could for example just watch a stream in a river like eight seas it's like so so nice so yeah basically this space physics has this both electromagnetic interaction but then also fly fluid dynamics so you build up the career gradually towards uh, space physics and and studying uh, the solar earth interaction but can you name three things from your life as a scientist that you really really love very much and you wouldn't like to change for anything else in the world observing is is great somehow like I don't know when I realize it, but like like nowadays, I like define it one very important moment in my life because when I was a kid, I'm super proud of about this, by the way. But like at some point by myself, I realized that sea mammals, like what what distinguishes them from fish, are like their tails is like horizontal, whereas fish have their tail like vert- uh, vertically. So I like- always wondered about that. Yeah. And, and- wait, I mean, as a biologist, I guess I should know this. Yeah. <laughs> I, prob- I clearly don't. So please keep talking. Yeah. So like, I don't know, somehow at some point I made this, that observation because when I was a kid, like, I watched a lot of these nature documentaries. And that was like some one kind of observation. I'm like, yeah, observing stuff is great. So that's like uh, my number one. Then there's also like intellectual challenge because like it's it's great when you can when you try to uh, interpret your observations and measurements, and then you are like discussing with your colleagues and you are like really trying to understand it, and you try to come up with an explanation, and then you try to justify it so yeah so observing intellectual challenge and then freedom because yeah I feel that there are there is a lot of freedom like how I can conduct my studies and that's like very uh, positive thing also like I can I I can work when it best, best suits me so like I'm not like that like strictly tied to certain working hours but I can work very flexibly so those three, I would say. Nice, indeed. I, I like them all, especially the, the flexible working hours. I, I appreciate a lot. I don't know if you, Giuliano, you have any other question to ask, but I have uh, one of my personal favorite questions, um, which I would like to try and ask everybody, to be honest. What is the message you would like to pass to a young uh, kid or a young teenager who might aspire to be a scientist? Well, I would tell them to like learn different things. So like get curious about many different fields because you don't always know what is the most interesting field or topic for you. So I would like try different sciences or like 
try to learn about different sciences and also because in the end also if you like study some science it might and it could benefit like studying then some other science because for example i had to learn some statistical uh, methods for when i conducted my research and then so yeah this was in space physics but later at some point i was discussing about genes of animals and then like i actually ended up googling studies in biology that had used the same method to analyze data i had used in my study and then i could actually i was able to understand those uh, results because of uh, similar methods used so yeah like yeah studying different sciences they benefit each other and also they like uh, help you to guide yourself in to which direction you would go so that's like one thing and in general to be curious and then just sometimes it's frustrating to do science and to learn things that are very complicated so just be how i can't remember the word but perseverance how it's pronounced i think it's perseverance yes but i'm is. not 100% sure yeah me neither it is it's that what i was looking for yeah well that's a very good message mati i like that it's good kids remember to be open-minded and and stay strong yeah. uh, and focused it's a very and, nice message thank you mati and remember to study for the medicine test it will get you into physics <laughs> yeah yeah it doesn't matter if you come to study physics first and then you go to medical school because of course like it's it's nice to go to a doctor who has studied some physics that's a good point but also in general i think if at some point in your life you completed uh, a certain degree whatever it was and you decided that i liked it but there's something else that's calling me and i want to pursue it it's never too late to to change and and pursue something different and uh it's always nice you have gained maturity through your first diploma then you can move on to the second one with a uh, some already tools in your bag and it's and it's nice yeah I, i definitely agree and then i remember once reading a short text about like studying in university and it, the person who wrote the text uh, said that like in university i learned to learn so that's what that's what i was like that was interesting and i liked it so like yeah exactly what eliana just said like you can have one field where you have done your studies but that also prepare you to like also have some other studies in the future if you want right i i like that motto at the university you learn to learn i will be using that every time they told me you didn't learn that at the university i'll be like no no at the university i learned how to learn yeah i mean that that's a conversation that i that you know i get a lot especially When I was a master student, I would discuss with other students and, you know, students were discussing with their own or complaining about their own university saying, oh, we didn't learn about this new topic and stuff like that. And I was like, well, you know, you can't expect a course, a master degree to teach you everything there is to know in a specific right. degree. I mean, that's not possible. Mm. The point of the university gives you the tool to then be autonomous and study by yourself, because otherwise, you know. A degree wouldn't last three years if, you know, they tried to teach you everything there is to know about that specific uh, subject. No, I totally agree. Yeah. And then like, well, yeah, in Finland and in general, also like at least in European countries, we have this like very basic university degree 
like line of degrees at first bachelor, then masters, and then if you continue, then becoming a doctor. And I think it's worth of mentioning that this doctoral degree, like in at least in Finland, it's also called like a, a researcher education. Like you are educated to become a researcher. So like once you finish your master's degree, you are not like you don't have to feel very confident about being a researcher yet because if you continue your to your PhD studies that's the point when you are educated uh, to become a researcher that is something supervisors need to remember that they are not there to just give orders to the students they are cultivating the next generation of scientists so there's a lot more mentoring and uh, other kind of soft skills development that come in play so I like that you pointed that pointed that out Mati this was a very nice and interesting conversation so thank you very much Mati for being with us today if you have any further questions to ask Mati you will find his email in the description of the episode and that brings us to the end of this podcast episode but before you go Giuliano what's mm. the fun fact of today's episode right So, do you guys like bees? I love bees. You love bees, especially right, okay. bumblebees. Okay, Matti, what do, what's your general opinion about bees? They are fine. Oh, they're, they're are fine. Good. Thank yeah. you. That was so finished. They're, they're decent. They, <laughs> But they deserve the honey. right to yeah. survive. Yeah. Okay. But I also love honey. So, ah, oh, you like honey? Well, there you go. So, yeah. Then you must love bees. So, did you guys know that bees could count? No. Oh, well, it's not true. Uh, but the relevance <laughs> of this, no, why am I saying this? It's because we thought they could count, but turns out they might have been cheating. What happened is that in, in 2018, one, I mean, I found this paper from Science, but apparently there are other papers showing this, claiming that bees could actually count and that they could recognize quantity by numbers. Basically, the sci scientists uh, made this test with the bees basically they had to the bees had to recognize between different pictures differing from differing uh, you know the difference between the pictures was the number of objects in the pictures and uh, only one of the two pictures provided water with sugar which was their reward and apparently they showed that were able after training to recognize the image with more pictures or with a high number of pictures so to you know always look for the for the for the sweet water so since then Scientists thought, oh, wow, bees are so smart, they can count. However, this year, and I mean 2021, uh, another paper that was published in this, the Royal Society Publishing, basically they suggest that actually bees might have been cheating in this test and they were not counting, rather they were using visual cues to figure out where the water was. So they did the same experiment, so they trained the bees to expect to look for the water with sugar only when you know, there was a picture with a higher number of items. And then they made another test with two pictures. But instead of different numbers, the pictures were different because of the density and the uh, details of the picture. So the numbers of the items in every picture was the same, but in one of them, they were more clustered together, in the other one, more sparse, or they had other visual cues. And turns out that the bees, so basically if the bees were counting, then the bees would just go 50-50. You know, they would just go equally in one way or the other. And yet, but but what they saw was that the bees were actually going whether, if the bees were trained to look for the high number of items, 
they would choose in this case the picture with the high density of item. So scientists here are suggesting, mm, we know what, maybe they're not that smart. They're, I mean, they're they're not university smart, they're street smart, apparently, right? You see what I mean? They weren't counting, but they still figured out through other ways. Yeah. So yeah. maybe for them it was like this visual image when they could understand that something looked cramped. And that must be a lot of it. Something didn't look cramped, and so it's not a lot of it. So, in a sense, they 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 don't count, but they can sense the the notion of amount, right? Yeah, that's a, that's exactly the author's point. Uh, what they're saying is, of course, this does not prove that they're not able to count. It's just a counter argument to the uh, the statement according to which they could count. What the author says that surely the bees might have evolved a sense of amount and quantity, but through other ways rather than actually counting the individual items, rather through more this visual perception of clustering or uh, amount, um, in overall amount. Yes. But yeah, I found quite interesting this small debate that apparently we didn't know about it. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm, a bio, I'm a biologist, but I, I studied the brain and you guys apparently you, you like you like the bees? Well, Matty, you seemed quite indifferent. You said they were all right. But anyway, and we didn't know that the, the, the scientists were debating whether bees could count or not. And turns out they were cheating. So there you go. They're pretty smart. Gangster style smart. Exactly. They were street smart. You're right. Counting or non-counting, bees are a creature we need to protect. So people, do your bit and protect our bees. Our own life depends also on them because they pollinate the trees and trees will filter uh, and produce our oxygen. So we need trees, we need bees. Well said. Thank you again, Mati, for joining us today and to you, our listeners, and stay tuned for the next episode. Bye. 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 The science if you like this episode, Give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. Interested in getting involved or being interviewed? Get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.